This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a new scientific breakthrough could help doctors find out if dengue fever patients have an extreme form of the illness that develops into bleeding from the ears and gums. And we found some specific populations in the blood of the patients that develop dengue hemorrhagic fever that could be good predictors. And WhatsApp is not just a way to send silly photos to your friends. In Papua New Guinea, midwives in remote communities are using it to help save lives. There are discussions that I post and the discussions are meant for um, the staff to read and discuss um, critically and also, you know, share experiences. And with Anzac Day tomorrow, the spotlight is on PNG's Kokoda Trail. But following the recent death of an Australian trekker, can more be done to improve the track? We'll speak to the local governor to find out what he thinks. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Vanuatu's Prime Minister has defended efforts to clean up the country's controversial golden passport scheme after it sparked a diplomatic stoush with the British government. Ishmael Kalsakau concerns centre on a UK article that claimed Chinese spies were using Vanuatu passports to gain visa-free entry to Britain. It comes in the middle of United Kingdom's push to re-engage with the Pacific, so... Could this damage diplomatic relations? William Fox with this report. Ishmael Kausakau was not a happy man after reading a recent article in The Times newspaper. Not happy with the paper, but also unhappy with the British government. They set up the High Commission in, in, in Vanuatu, and, and I would have thought at least I would have been given notice of, uh, of uh, any concerns that, 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 that they would have. The article said Britain's domestic security agency, MI5, had warned UK ministers that Chinese spies are slipping into Britain by gaining citizenship through third countries and using their visa-free access to the UK. It singled out Vanuatu as one of those third countries, alongside Timor-Leste and Namibia. The article stated that the warning from MI5 had led the Home Office to prepare new visa restrictions for countries being exploited by China. Mr. Kalsakal says it was unfair and tarnished Vanuatu's international reputation. We're trying our best to uh, ensure that uh, we, we have a transparent system and we have a rigid uh, legal framework. We've uh, passed some amendments in Parliament and uh, this, this sort of exposure doesn't, doesn't help our cause at all. It's not the first time Vanuatu's so-called Golden Passport Scheme has been in the news. In recent years, several news organisations, including the ABC, have done stories on the country's lucrative citizenship by investment program, as it's formally known. Those stories had documented how individuals with questionable backgrounds have purchased Vanuatu citizenship, and most importantly, a Vanuatu passport, all without even setting foot in the country. Mr Kalsakal, though, says he has taken significant steps to clean up the scheme since becoming PM late last year, including a revamp of the body that oversees it, the Citizenship's Office and Commission. So I've removed uh, all the personnel uh, and uh, replaced them with uh, new personnel. And I've actually uh, taken uh, the um, Citizenship Act uh, to Parliament by way of an amendment to, to ensure that we remove the probity checks away from the Citizenship Commission back to 
The immigration uh, department simply does its own check, followed by the police with Interpol. He believes the Times article should have mentioned those measures and the British government should have briefed him on any concerns it has. I believe we're running a a government that has integrity. We're trying to ensure as much as possible that we don't uh, let people who shouldn't be getting our citizenship in through through the door because it it affects uh, our reputation with other countries. Tess Newton-Kane from Griffith University's Pacific Hub has dual British and Ni Vanuatu citizenship. She says the scheme is a sensitive issue for Mr Kausakau. There's a lot of prickliness around that. I think that there are plenty in government that know that it's a vulnerability to an extent. They do take their international reputation very seriously, with good reason, as they should. And, yeah, I think it's it's obviously something that is, you know, gets under his skin and that he takes on a quite a personal level. In the wake of the article, Mr Kalsakow demanded an apology from The Times and one from the British government. Both are unlikely to occur, though the British High Commissioner to Vanuatu, Nicolette Brent, met with the PM and gave him a traditional woven mat, one used in reconciliation ceremonies, according to the Daily Post newspaper. In a statement, Ms Brent said, We have been discussing concerns about the citizenship by investment scheme with Vanuatu. We welcome the renewed focus by the government on reforming its CBI program and we intend to continue the discussions in an open and honest way. We regret that the Times article was published in this way. We would never wish to see the reputation of our friend tarnished in this way and I share in the embarrassment this article has caused. Tess Newton-Kane says the High Commissioner's response was disappointing. She kind of threw the times under the bus. Yes, she needs to protect that relationship, but she also needs to remember that she's working in an environment where we've seen questions and issues about media freedom. We've seen uh, government players try to shut the media down or, or make out that the media is irresponsible. And I think that as a major democratic power representatives of the British government need to be ensuring that they walk the talk on issues like media freedom and and an independent press. All of this has occurred while Britain is attempting to recharge diplomatic relations in the Pacific. The reopening of the British High Commission in Port Villa is part of that strategy. And last week, a Royal Navy ship docked in the city as well. At the same time, the UK's Foreign Secretary, James Cleverley, was touring through the region. For his part, Mr Kalsakow says the Stoush has been resolved and it has not affected relations with the UK. I've met with the, uh, the High Commissioner of the United Kingdom and we, we've actually um, resolved some of these issues and we've decided to, to move away quickly from uh, something that happened to be leaked to the media and move forward to uh, forging stronger ties. That was Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakow ending that report from Liam Fox. Now to Papua New Guinea, where a WhatsApp group is helping midwives in some of the country's most remote communities stay connected and get advice. A PNG midwife currently studying in Australia came up with the idea, and as Dubrovka Volodair reports, there's hope the initiative can help reduce PNG's high maternal death rate. Junior midwife Caroline Fred knows how crucial it is to reflect with others on patient care. But as the only midwife in her remote clinic in Bougainville, it can be hard to do so. The 29-year-old says having an app 
web-based community of midwives from all over PNG has been invaluable for her. Working in a remote facility, it's helped me to connect with other midwives. Having graduated only late last year, Miss Fred says she can now ask questions and get advice from other midwives. Behind the idea is Sherilyn Polymon. The idea to set up a support community for midwives using an instant messaging app came to her when she observed her environment. The phone is always on our hands every day, every time. It will be used whenever we have the phone with us. The 46-year-old says she had the idea after another non-phone-based support community she was running for midwives had a low uptake. But she saw the need for such a group because she knew that working as a midwife in remote parts can be isolating. Seeing that we cannot swim alone, we need people to be around us. We need people to work with and having that connection. Miss Polymon contacted midwives across PNG to join the project. She made them administrators so they could also add new members. The members soon multiplied and she says the community has now grown to about 500 across PNG and overseas. So this community of practice is um, created in a way where there are discussions that I post and the discussions are meant for um, the staff to read and discuss um, critically and also, you know, share experiences that are related to the discussions. Papua New Guinea has one of the highest rate of maternal and newborn deaths in the Pacific region. Estimates vary, but according to the World Bank, 34 babies in every 1,000 have died in childbirth in PNG in 2021. A research fellow at the ANU, Dr. Colin Wiltshire, says Papua New Guinea is among the hardest places in the world to give birth. Expecting mothers find it often very difficult to access a skilled healthcare worker who can assist them the delivery and births. Most of the population, at least 85%, live in rural and remote locations. Those expecting mothers need to be able to access a health facility that would have a midwife available um, to deliver births. He says midwives and mothers need all the support they can get. Midwives and health workers at various levels of the health system have to refer um, expecting mothers to higher levels um, of the health system if they do experience difficulties. It's very hard for them to access, you know, things like basic transport, um, ambulances, uh, emergency planes, um, you know, if, if they're needed, to be able to, uh, you know, deal with, uh, with a, um, you know, an emergency situation when mothers give birth. So mostly midwives um, are seeking greater support. He says using phone-based services to connect midwives is a great idea. Sherilyn Polomon is happy that the app community is helping to address some of these problems. We really don't communicate and attach to our rural midwives. We only see patients that are referred to us, to us, to the hospital by the rural midwives. But with this group, I've seen that it connects that the um, rural midwife and even a junior rural midwife can easily get onto the phone and, and text and ask for advice. The information sharing has also been invaluable for another member, Rondi Tumsi. The 53-year-old is on study leave, 
but has worked as a midwife in health centers in East Sepik province for about 20 years. Despite her expertise, she has learned a lot from the community, including tips for delivering babies when things go wrong. Another recent topic of discussion she took part in was newborn care. We learn from the discussion, especially when you deliver a baby, the baby has to have this bonding of a mother to baby. It must be kept on the chest of the mother for an hour and then later you can do the other stuff like weighing babies and giving the newborn injections and all this. That wasn't done before, would you say? We do it, but we tend to forget, so we were emphasizing again, uh, sewing videos and all this. Sherilyn Polamon has big ideas for the group's future. What I'm thinking of is to see that community grow or practice grow, and it kind of influences the way we think um, and we see ourselves that we can always make difference when we stand together for our women. More online discussion groups are already in the works. That story by Dubrovka Valadier and additional reporting was from Hugo Hodge. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Scientists have found a way to detect which patients are likely to suffer from an extreme form of dengue fever, which is, in the worst case, could cause bleeding from the ears and gums. It's an important development for the Pacific as countries brace for an expected rise in dengue outbreaks as a result of warming global temperatures. Professor Deanna Hansen from Monash University says their discovery could save hospitals in the Pacific thousands of dollars in treatment. Well, the study was a collaboration with colleagues in Indonesia, the Eichmann Center in Jakarta. And what we were trying to do is to identify factors that can help us determine who is more at risk of developing dengue hemorrhagic fever, which is a very severe form of dengue infection, when they come to hospital. Well, first of all, it's a high prevalence in Southeast Asia, And it comes in two different manifestations, mild dengue, if you wish, that we normally call dengue fever, that has symptoms more like a flu, like a headache and nausea and maybe rash and pain behind the eyes. But there is a more severe form of dengue that could be lethal, that is called dengue hemorrhagic fever. And that basically is caused by increased vascular permeability. So you start having like bruising in the skin and skin hemorrhagics. And you can be bleeding from the nose or from your gums. And eventually you can even have internal organ bleeding, which is actually quite severe. So when somebody comes to hospital after it's been beaten by a mosquito and has the infection during the first days of fever, so day one to three of fever, It is very difficult for the doctors to predict who is going to develop mild dengue or dengue hemorrhagic fever. So our study basically looked at the cells in the blood of patients from presented with dengue hospitals in Jakarta to try to identify specific things in the blood that could help us determine which patients were at risk. And we found some specific populations in the blood of the patients that developed dengue hemorrhagic fever that could be good predictors of 
in the future to to basically help us develop diagnostic tests that can be used at point of care by the doctors to see if a person has to be hospitalized or not. And so in the report, it talked about potential biomarker mm-hmm. that you could show the severity of uh, dengue. Please explain how, how this is similar to COVID-19 and, and how you'd be able to create that. What we have done so far is uh, work towards that final outcome. We have uh, identified specific populations in the blood that are present when a person is about to start developing dengue hemorrhagic fever. What we would like to do now in future studies is to zoom in into these cell populations in the blood and try to fish out specific molecules expressed within these very specific cells. And that is what we call the biomarker. That's basically the very specific molecule that is only present in the blood of a person when it's about to develop dengue hemorrhagic fever. And hopefully after we isolate that molecule, we can develop tests similar to the COVID one that uh, the doctors can do at point of care to see if the person has that molecule and is at risk of developing uh, severe dengue. And so... Having a way to measure the severity of the case obviously allows for greater number of severe cases specifically to go into the hospital and get treated properly, whereas lodge out the the ones in observation. Uh, how much money do you expect hospitals to save from this? A lot. That's a very good point. The problem is that there is no test so far when a doctor is not sure if the person is at risk or not, what they do is that they they are scared of sending people back home so they would hospitalize you know, patients that might or might not develop dengue hemorrhagic fever. And it's estimated that the cost of a non-fatal hospitalized dengue case is three times more expensive than one that is managing us an outpatient. So obviously, if the doctors had a tool that can send people home instead of being at hospital when it's not required, that's going to have a massive impact, uh, socioeconomical impact in the health systems. It's, it's, uh, it's very expensive. The, the cost of a hospitalized dengue case out of pocket for the patient can vary from 100 to 1,000 US dollars, depending on the location in Southeast Asia. And the overall cost of dengue, which is basically the direct cost, that is the medical care, and the indirect cost is worth something like 1400 US dollars. That was Professor Diana Hansen from Monash University here in Australia, speaking there to reporter Jan Kahoot. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. I'd never been in the political scenario. I had never voted until I voted for myself, but I made this crazy decision to stand, so I knew I had to work really, really hard. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Now it's that time here on Pacific Beach where we find out what's making news around the region. And to do that, as always, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. It's been a long time. 
It has been a long time. I trust you had some uh, some good time off. Yes, yes. My brother got married recently, a couple of weeks ago, and and I also took a couple of um, weeks off around that. So it's nice to be back. Um, and nice to hear some news out of the Pacific uh, as well. Um, you've got a, a bit of a sad one for us to start with. Uh, in, in American Samoa, daycare centres have been shut down after a case of measles was detected. Can you tell us more about this case? Yeah, that's right. So health authorities confirmed that an eight-year-old girl uh, had been detected with measles. So this is reported by the Asia-Pacific Report. Uh, it's been reported a number of other places as well. And according to the Territories Department, uh, the girl was actually showing symptoms uh, at a community centre way back on March 27. Uh, samples were sent to California and were returned as positive. And uh, as a result, daycare centres have now been closed uh, along with the school the girl attends. And the department said they're going to monitor to see if any more, any more schools need to be closed as well. Yes, measles is very, very contagious, um, which I, I guess explains why the Department of Health there in American Samoa is, is taking such a concerted effort to um, isolate those those places, like as, as you said, um, shut down those daycare centres and, and the school. Um, I understand they also held a press conference there. Um, did they give more details about who's more most at risk? Yeah, they provided a pretty good breakdown of those target groups. I mean, the good news is about 89% of that target group are fully vaccinated. However, there is a 3% group uh, that's most at risk. Uh, here's what they had to say about that. Currently, grades 1 to 12, private schools for fully immunized children is at 90.5%. The coverage for public schools grade 1 to 12 is 95%. As mentioned previously, the target population is 4% of those that are in private schools and about 1% of those that are in our public schools. With the target population of those that are eligible for the vaccines now, so for daycare centers, 42.4% of those that are in daycare centers and are eligible for the vaccine have been fully vaccinated or have full immunization records. That was a member from the Department of Health there, I believe, um, Kyle, from um, American Samoa. Correct, it was. Um, at a press conference there. And yeah, as you said, that there is a, a group that's most at risk. Um, and I imagine that would be the, those who are unvaccinated. Mm. Um, I, I know the authorities there are encouraging those who haven't got the vaccines, particularly young children who are most at risk of measles, um, to, to make sure they are vaccinated and have all their sort of um, vaccines up to date. Um, so yes, if you are listening, I mean, I guess it's a good reminder for us all particularly parents of young children across the Pacific that, um, you know, with, with so much travel now since the pandemic, now that borders are open, people are traveling across islands. It's always good to check in on these vaccination rates and make sure that your you and your family are protected. Um, so, yes, this is a good reminder. And, and hopefully there are no more cases of measles there in American Samoa because it is yeah, a rapidly contagious um, disease. Um, now to an interesting story, a bit of history here. Um, we have Anzac Day coming up and you've got a World War II story of sorts for us. Um, a team of divers from the United States have died more than 200 feet. The feet sounds, sounds, um, deep. I don't know the conversion feet to meters. I don't know if that's a good can. question, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds deep though. Um, anyway, they've traveled 200 feet underwater in search of a World War II wreckage in Papua New Guinea. Tell us more. Yeah, so it is a bit of a flashy one. So uh, elite divers uh, from the US Navy, as well as a team of archaeologists from Defence POW, have just wrapped up a five-week search uh, looking for a World War II aircraft. So this is reported by the Washington Post, and they were looking for a 
B-22 bomber that went down in Hanson Bay in PNG uh, back on March 11, 1944, after it was hit by a Japanese fire, killing all on board. Now, the search actually unfolded 10 miles from an, uh, from an active volcano, and it actually marked the deepest recovery mission uh, in the department's history. And when I say recovery, so people who actually went under there and, and, and dove for it, not like a submarine. Oh, wow. Yes, that, that is amazing. And did they actually find the wreckage that they were after? It looks like they have. So they haven't confirmed it yet, but they did find uh, material that they believe might be might be human bone, uh, along with material evidence uh, that, could, that could actually support making a positive identification. That's obviously going to have to It'd be sent away to be sampled, however, for, for analysis. Uh, they did also find uh, two aircraft machine gun barrels um, from that wreckage too. Wow, it's an amazing, amazing to think that so many years, you know, almost, um, I guess, almost three decades since the war that they um, have been able to recover recover some things. Um, and yes, we'll, we'll find out if there is a match. And for those of you and for us as well, 200 feet is almost 61 meters. So that's 61 meters. 61 meters. Yeah, underwater that they um, that they dove to try and uncover uh, this wreckage. So very, very interesting. And, and how deep the water pressure would be at 61 meters. You'd want some, uh, some pretty thick diving equipment. Yes, yes. And probably some elite divers as well to be uh, used to that pressure and, and that experience. Um, obviously, it is a very risky and dangerous process. Profession, mm, that diving. You wouldn't know which way was up and which way was down that yeah, day. Yeah, indeed. I can't, can't imagine it. Um, and now to some sports news. Uh, Pacific teams were in action across both rugby co- codes. Carl, how did they go? Yeah, not much luck for any of them this week, unfortunately. Uh, uh, the Andrua uh, were thrashed by the undefeated Chiefs 50-17 to in the Super Rugby, while in the Super W, the Fijiana Andrua fell 45-22 to to the Queensland Reds. Uh, meanwhile, in the Rugby League Queensland Cup, the PNG Hunters face the uh, the Burley Bears in the annual Kokoda Cup, which is a annual Anzac Day clash. Right. Uh, however, they fell forty six to twenty. Bit of an improvement on last year, though, where they lost thirty four nil. So okay. Okay, yeah. No Kokoda Cup for up. them this year. Things looking up, yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, some interesting things there. It's sort of nice to see so much sports happening anyway. I've missed it a bit. I tend to keep out of sports while I'm off. Um, but nice to see some of some updates with the um, Pacific Games there. Um, and, in fact, speaking of Kokoda, we've got a, a story coming up about the Kokoda Trail. There's been sort of some um, intense scrutiny of the trail, particularly with, as you said, Anzac Day coming up. Um, tomorrow, in fact. But also there's been that tragic um, death of, mm. of an Australian man on the trail just last week. Uh, so we'll be speaking with the governor of the an area there in Papua New Guinea to hear what he thinks about the trail, if more can be done to sort of um, improve it, improve the conditions and, and perhaps um, prevent some injuries and also help the surrounding in communities as well. <laughs> You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan with you this Monday morning. For many Pacific Islanders, living and working in Australia means leaving behind families and spending years away from loved ones. It's a tough experience that around 35,000 people are currently doing here, many in order to support their economic futures back home. But in one community in country Victoria, the hardship is being softened by a group of new Vanuatu workers committed to helping their new neighbours. Dina Boucher with more. In the Victorian town of Stall, Junior Isaka from Vanuatu is a familiar face in the community. I first came here in 2020, just after covid And it's been three years 
and this year is my fourth year. Around 28 Ni Vanuatu workers now call Stall home. When they're not at work in the town's meatworks, they're out helping elderly residents like the Boags. Pat and her husband Graham say it's helped to break down barriers. It's hard for them to come into a small community. Um, some communities are very tight-lit. But you know, I mean, hard for me to break into. People like that coming from overseas have no idea of the lifestyle that we live. And while they enjoy helping their neighbours, life away from home can be tough for many. Mr Isaka says leaving loved ones behind for long periods at a time is difficult, especially when there's been deaths in the family. I think the biggest challenges we're facing here, we're sort of uh, distanced from our families. I know some of the boys since COVID, they actually haven't had a proper funeral for some of their parents, and that's, that's really sad for, for them. His sister Sandra, who's also in stall, understands their sacrifices will benefit their families in the long run. But it hasn't been easy. I haven't seen my son for three years since I've been here. But good news, last year he gets to come over for holidays since the borders open. So he was with me over the Christmas, New Year's holiday and he just went back. Wherever they go in this town, their distinctive Melanesian singing follows. Stores Mayor Kevin Irwin says their hard work and sacrifice is also recognised. It is a big thing and I, I really give them a lot of credit to, to come out here. Um, they work hard and they fit in the community nicely and uh, people appreciate the work that they do within the community. On the streets of Stall, Ni Vanuatu worker David Tari is enjoying the recognition. People here are so welcoming of us. We are practically very well known here in the community. Uh, when someone sees us, they oh, you're from Vanuatu. Um, you, you, you guys are famous on Facebook, what you are doing. And that, I would say, is credit to those who have been here before us. Lovely voices and new Vanuatu workers there in the town of Stoll here in Victoria, wrapping up that report from Dinah Boucher. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Anzac Day is tomorrow, which usually means many Australians will travel to Papua New Guinea to trek the almost 100-kilometre Kokoda Trail. But the governor of Northern Province, Gary Jaffert, says more can be done by both PNG and Australia to maintain the historic World War II site. Good morning to you, Governor Jaffert. Uh, good morning. Um, now, I, I want to start, before we get into um, some of your concerns around improving the trek, there has been that recent tra- tragedy of, of Paul Miller, an Australian man who died, I believe, just last week while on a fundraising walk on the Kokoda Trail. Um, I understand he had a heart attack, but police are still investigating. What can you tell us about what happened there? Well, if the police are still investigating, I really can't talk about it other than to confirm that from reports that I have received, a, a, a adult male uh, passed away uh, and the circumstances of which I have uh, no knowledge of other than that he passed away whilst on the track. And once I have a full report, which with, with a confirmed 
police uh, with, with confirmed police details as to how he died, then I can comment on it uh, in, 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 with, with more knowledge. Yes, I understand, Governor. It is very recent. And I understand incidents like this are, are fairly rare. Do you believe that, um, you know, it was preventable or, or it could have been related to the track? Have incidents like this happened before? Well, there have been deaths on the track before on the trail, you know, the track trail. The So this isn't a first. Mm. Uh, this is not a, a, a no. It, it, it does happen. There have been deaths. They're not uh, common, but they do happen. Mm. And they happen for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, you can't know the health of a person 100%. You can do tests and, you know, the, the machines, the test results may indicate that they're in good health, but that not that may not be the case, you know. And there are other circumstances that, uh, you know, give rise to extreme stress uh, faced by the tracker for whatever reason uh, and that may cause to you know them having uh, losing their lives yes in, in indeed i mean it is quite a, a strenuous uh, trek i understand uh, governor so yes the health of the of the trekker is is very important and and i i do want to reiterate investigations are um ongoing as you said governor and and we're not when it's it's unclear in fact it's not known at all if if the trek or the the status of the trek had anything to do with it but i do know that the improvement of the trek is, is something that you're interested in what do you think of the current condition of the kokoda trail well, look, it's uh, it's a standard trail in terms of uh, the standard services for uh, for trackers are concerned. Uh, there could be improvements. Yes, uh, you know, could improve the, the the camping facilities. We could improve in other areas, such as ensuring that uh, there's more regular maintenance of the trail and the facilities. Uh, but you have to understand also that this the trail occurs on traditional land. You know, land that belongs to the people. It also is, and um, you know, we, we 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 it's always difficult to manage such situations when you've got landowner issues. However, the landowners are fairly decent folk. They're good people. They've been uh, accommodating this trail for some time. Uh, but I think the failure is in in our governments to basically come forward with the funding that they pledge to make that funding available to maintain the trail. Uh, it's a national government responsibility, uh, though it, the, the trail sits in both the central and the northern provinces. Uh, the Australian government does pledge some funding, and that funding goes into various activities along the trail, livelihood activities mainly. Uh, but I feel that perhaps we both governments need to really take stock of the situation and do a total overhaul of the facilities along the trail uh, so that, uh, you know, trekkers... Uh, those who are walking, those who are participating, as well as those who are living along the trail, uh, get the services that they deserve. Mm. I mean, what sort of services are there? You, you mentioned the campgrounds there. Are they sort of, is, is it pretty much sleeping quite rough? There's no access to outside services or, or any connections or anything there? Well, the communication is a challenge. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a forest. It's a jungle. You know, uh, you're not going to have food parts and cafes and mm-hmm. uh, cinemas and things like that. That, you know, that That's not what the, the soldiers in World War II, uh, you know, had. They fought in the jungle. Mm. 
And so if you're walking the trail, you're more or less uh, replicating the, 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 the challenges that they faced. You know, that's, that's the point of the trail. And along the way, there's going to be campsites. These campsites will be very spartan, you know. Uh, I know some trekkers have uh, complained because they want boutique campsites, you know, with hot showers and things like that. But the reality is this is, this is a jungle forest, World War II trail, you know. Mm. And you're walking along that trail basically in remembrance of the soldiers and those are the persons who fought and you know, lived this particular uh, situation or endured this particular situation or did not survive this particular situation. So that's the reality. There could be improvements, yes. There can be improvements in anything we do, really. There could be improvements, for instance, in how Australia behaves towards West Papua and the situation there. You know, there are improvements that are possible anywhere, everywhere in life. Mm. So, yes, we could do with improvements along the trail. Uh, from both sides. Uh, as for the Australian government, I feel that they have done significantly in terms of uh, ensuring that the funds that they pledged to uh, uh, are coming into the country. Uh, we have to step up. Uh, we as a, you know, as the government of Papua New Guinea, and we've made that known. I've met with ministers recently. Uh, we'll be taking a, uh, a a document to the prime minister to remind him that you know, this is a very important trail that requires uh, the attention of the national government. Mm. I mean, is it is it difficult for you, um, Governor, because you are, I guess, balancing different demands and this trail, as you said, is usually a remembrance. It's a lot of Australians who, who use the trail, a lot of tourists who aren't from that region. I, would this money be better used to support the communities there rather than going to improving the trail? I mean, is it a difficult balancing act for you to see the money go to where it's most needed for, for your people? Well, the people, uh, the I think the Australian government uh, does have programs under the Kolkata Initiative program that does expand the funding for health, education, and livelihood programs that are quite, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're working. I know there's been some criticism. In fact, you probably have a journalist on the trail who's walking with a particular trail uh, a veteran, you know. Uh, but at the same time, we have to be mindful that there are all sides to a story, different sides to a story. And from what I see as a governor, I think the Australian government has done uh, a significant amount of work in trying to contribute to the livelihoods of the people that live along the trail. The people that live along the trail also have had an opportunity where there was to be a mine that was to be built along that trail. Okay, uh, the Papua New Guinea and Australian governments agreed that that mine won't be built, you know. Uh, had that mine been built, it would have provided jobs, it would have provided income, it would have uh, transformed their lives. Okay, so we said that mine won't be built. Okay, what are the alternatives? And I think the Australian government's doing its part, but the PNG government, uh, we need to uh, contribute as well. Uh, well, that's very interesting. We're struggling with resources, we are doing the best we can with what we have. Yes, that's very interesting, Governor, because what did the local communities think about that when that mining um, deal, the mining plan, was was turned back? Well, you know, they. it depends on who you speak to. There mm. are those who do not want the mine because they prefer that they preserve or conserve their, their natural environment. You know, mines can be environmentally destructive and disruptive. And then there are those who look at the economic opportunities and what they've foregone, you know, they, they don't have roads, you know, they, 
they don't have the the services and goods that others around the country are enjoying because there's no revenue coming into their communities, into their local level government, into their electorate, into their province, etc., etc. So there are those who are obviously, you know, going to be a bit uh, upset by that or bitter about it. Because so that's they, another reality. Do, do they benefit from the Kokoda track, um, from the tourism that comes? Do you believe that they are being Sure they do. Sure yeah. they do. A lot of people benefit along the way, you know, from, from, the, you know, from the revenue that's brought in by tourism and by the tourists. Yes, yes. But I, 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 it's very interesting to see that perhaps um, some developments, uh, for instance, as you said, the jobs that could have come from this mining development um, might have been uh, sacrificed to preserve the Kokoda Trail. I mean, it's a very difficult decision to make. It's a situation that confronts the country with, with, with our natural resources. We're abundant in natural resources, you know, but we're constantly being told to preserve and conserve them. But those who tell us to do that are unwilling to often turn up and, you know, sustain us in compensation or in remuneration so we can essentially protect these assets that belong to the world, really, when you talk about forests, biodiversity, natural environment, etc., etc., Yes, I mean it's a difficult. Um, I, I think that this this story just highlights um, how difficult making those decisions must be as a governor and and the wider government there in Papua New Guinea, um, uh, Governor Jufra. It is challenging. It is challenging. You have to note, in, uh, you have to remember that Papua New Guinea is only forty eight years old, as well. And so, you know, uh, tribes, one thousand tribes, eight hundred thirty languages, trying to come together and be a nation in forty eight years, it, it's going to be challenging. If you look at Australia, say you were to travel in a time machine back to Australia when it was just 48 years old, I'm sure they had challenges in in all types of ways, you know, including treating their local population as if they were flora and fauna. Example. Okay, so all nations who are developing will have challenges. And that's the case here. We do need help. We are getting help and uh, we are falling down, stumbling from time to time, but we're getting up picking ourselves up, learning from it and moving forward. So that's also happening. Yes, and indeed, Governor Jufa, it can be easy to uh, point the fingers, but um, uh, as you mentioned there, the context is also important. Um, and now, uh, you know, we're talking about the Kokoda Trail, particularly because we are on the in the eve of Anzac Day um, for this year, and, and it's widely celebrated here in Australia. We, in fact, have the day off. But are such histories of World War II significant in Papua New Guinea? I mean, do people there revisit these histories, remember these histories, like what happened on the Kokoda Trail all those years ago? Well, most people feel that it was not their war. And so they're not really, you know, uh, they don't have that much investment, emotional investment into the war, you know, and what happened, what transpired. At that time, Papua New Guinea was a territory of Australia, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it, it was not an independent nation. Uh, and it it, it, it it did its duty, you know, but here was a war that was enforced upon us. Most people, the village tribes, village people, they had no understanding of what this war was and what it was all about, you know. They were just grappling with the fact that they were emerging into a new world completely different from the world they were used to. So, you know, it, it's and, and, and a terrible, you know, event occurred that killed a lot of people. Uh, they lost a lot of lives. They'll remember it to some degree, but, you know, without context to it, they, they, they won't, they're not really invested into it, I would say. 
Yes, yes. Well, very interesting. I'm, I'm sure a lot of Australians will continue um, to walk the Kokoda Trail. Um, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Governor Jufa, for sharing your stories and, and sharing that incredible insight into, um, yes, as we said, that balancing act between improving the trail and also improving the lives of people around the trail. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. I would like to say a few things, though. If, yes. if I may, sure, in relation to context, in relation to the, this particular death, there is an unfortunate situation where the company that was responsible were not permitted to walk. We have an organization called the Kokoda Track Authority. It's a legal body that licenses companies so that they have the right to perform their, you know, to 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 perform their duty of care to their clients when they walk the trail, bringing trekkers to walk the trail. In this instance, this particular company refused to pay. And when it did pay, the payments were not processed. Permits were not yet issued. Mm. It's rather unfortunate that this happens. I urge you to find out reasons as to why this gentleman, what happened? Did he continue the track or did he walk back? You know, Yes, the company was irresponsible in its behavior it, to, the, to the people that it is responsible for and also to the laws of this nation. This, whether you like that organization or what it does or not, whether the campsites are maintained or you, and you like it or not, the fact of the matter yes. is here is a nation, here is an organization with laws. Thank you. Thank you, Governor Jufa. That, that is really interesting to hear that. And we will um, look into more. Um, as, as you so were telling us to... before, Gary Jufa, um, so Governor Jufa. Instead of just the stories told to you by you, that company. I, I understand. I, I, I just need important. to... I just need to reiterate that uh, investigations are continuing, as you mentioned before, Governor, as well, that we, um, we, we don't quite understand. I understand there will be a, a autopsy um, on that uh, tragedy and, and more investigations are continuing. We don't exactly know um, who's behind it. Uh, and I understand you, you did talk about the um, Kokoda Track Authority there. We have reached out to them for comment and we have also reached out to, for comment, ABC has, um, to the, uh, to the um, organization behind that trail that, that, that you mentioned there. Um, and, and as you said, it is an important issue and hopefully we can get some more, more clarity on that. But thank you so much for, for mentioning that. Um, as, as the investigation, I guess, results uh, um, emerge, uh, Governor, Hopefully we can get more clarity on exactly what happened there. Good. And then I'll be able to speak in more detail about what happened and the importance of following the laws of a country when you're operating there. Yes, yes. Very important. Um, thank you once again, uh, Governor Jufa, for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you. That was Governor Gary Jufa, Governor of the Northern Province, uh, speaking there about the Kokoda Trail. I mean, he, he revisited there that tragedy of Paul Miller, the Australian man who died last week on a fundraising walk on the Kokoda Trail. Just reiterating again that investigations are continuing into that. Um, the governor there did raise some concerns about the um, permit uh, permits there. Um, we don't have any more evidence of that, but we as well at ABC are, are seeking um, comment from the organisations and authorities behind that and that brings us to the end of pacific beat and tomorrow as we said it was is anzac day at 5 30 a.m we'll bring you the anzac day dawn service from the australian war memorial in canberra so do stay tuned to abc radio australia i'll be there as well with you um, for that news is next and uh, enjoy that and the rest of your day